Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that all scripture, all your words, um, uh, are given by you for, for our good, for our instruction, our correction, and our reproof. And we thank you that we can find these uh, truths even in the Old Testament. We thank you for your words in Exodus which contain uh, yeah, gold, truth about um, who you are and, um, yeah, and how we can live for you. So we pray that you'll give us ears to listen um, and to give our hearts an openness to receive your word. And we pray that you'll be with Jono as he um, explains your word later too. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's reading comes from Exodus 1, which can be found on page on page 44 of the church on the pew no pew bibles of the church bibles exodus 1 these are the names of the sons of israel who went to egypt with jacob each with his family reuben simeon levi and judah issachar zebulun and benjamin dan and naphtali Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his, to his people, the Israelites have become too, far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth to deliver to the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but 
let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. According to uh, the Pew Research Center, even if the number of Christians in uh, Europe is declining, Christianity remains uh, the largest religious group in the world, making up nearly a third, 31% of the world's population. And according to other um, de demographic studies uh, quoted by, by Tim Keller in his book uh, called uh, Making Sense of God, last Sunday, okay, last Sunday, there were more Christians attending church in China than there were in all of Christian Europe. By 2020, Keller says, uh, quotes the study, Christianity will have grown from 11.4 million Christians in East Asia, China, Korea, Japan in 1970, and 1.2% of the population to 171 million and 10.5% of the population. In 1910, only 12 million people, or 9% of Africa's population, were Christians. But they will number 630 million, or 49.3% of the populace, by 2020. I'm not done yet. Last Sunday, in each, each, of the nations of Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and South Africa, there were more Anglicans in church than there were Anglicans and Episcopalians in all of Britain and the United States combined. I'm done. I mean, isn't that absolutely amazing? Isn't that absolutely amazing? The question is, how? How is that possible? Given that Christians, as you may know, were persecuted and, and martyred by the Roman Empire from the 1st to the 4th century, from 64 to 313 AD. How is that possible? How is that possible given that today, as we speak this morning, more than 245 million Christians are persecuted for their faith in 50 countries, according to Open Doors. Nothing and nobody seemed to be able to stop God's people from growing, from exploding. You might have heard of uh, Tertullian, uh, one uh, of the greatest uh, Christian theologians. That's what he said uh, during the early church period. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Do you get it? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How did the church grow? Well, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more Christians are oppressed, the more they grow. You can't seem to get rid of them. 
How come? Well, I think the reason is in the text we've just read this morning. It's because God keeps his promises. He's a faithful God, isn't he? And he keeps his people. He's a powerful God, isn't he? That's what I'd like to see in this, uh, in the first chapter of Exodus, a, bo- a book telling us, as we've said, how the Lord delivered these people from slavery in Egypt. But just before, just a few words of context. Uh, as you know, uh, a text without a context is a pretext. So what happened before Exodus? Interesting to know. In Genesis, God promised Abraham that he will make him into a, remember? A great nation. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. A people as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Chapter 15 and 22 of Exodus. A people through whom, it's very important to keep in mind, a people through whom God will bless all peoples on on the earth. You and me. And God renewed his promises, what we call his, his covenant promises to Abraham's son. Remember? Among whom uh, Jacob, who had how many sons? Twelve sons, thank you. And Jacob loved one of them more than the others. His name was Joseph. Thank you again. So Joseph became the whipping boy, the, the punch bag. In French, we might say the, the punching ball. Not sure if that makes sense in English. He became the whipping boy of his brothers. So they sold him to some merchants who sold him in turn to one of the king's officials in Egypt. And once in Egypt, Joseph became in charge of the whole land because no one could read and understand the king's dreams apart from him. And one of his dreams, uh, one of the meanings of his dreams was as follows. Seven years of bounty were coming, but seven years of famine will follow. You can read that in Exodus, sorry, in Genesis 41. Egypt needs to do something about it, and Joseph is the man they need. He recommends to collect all the grain of the good years and store it up so it can be used in the bad years. That's clever. That's wise. And because of his wisdom, Joseph not only saved the lives of the people in Egypt, but also the lives of his father and his brothers who went to Egypt to buy grain. And when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, they freak out. What is he going to do? Is he going to kill us? We we tried to kill him. We sold him. What is he going to do? And we've got this wonderful, wonderful verse in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is what Joseph said to his brothers. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Don't we have an amazing God? In his sovereignty, he used the suffering of Joseph to save his people. And you might wonder, why am I saying all this? Well, because to show you the context of the passage we've read today, there is a link. In Exodus now, in Exodus 1 now, God is using the suffering, not just of one man, Joseph, but of his people. He's using the suffering of his people 
not only to save them, but also to make them grow, to make, make them explode. And we've got two reasons for this. And that will be my outline for today, which you can find in your bulletin. First of all, God keeps his promises, verse 1 to 7. And secondly, God keeps his people, verse 8 to 22. First of all, God keeps his promises, verse 1 to 7. When Joseph was still in Egypt, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. And you might have a note in your Bible in verse 5. Actually, some manuscripts say 75 people, okay? A few centuries after the death of Joseph, the number of the Israelites who came out of Egypt was how many? Well, you can read the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 1, verse 45, 600,000 men, and probably much more if we include women and children. So from 70 people to... Sorry, I can't reach higher. 600,000. Do you see how God has kept his promises? The covenant promises he's made to Abraham? Look at verse 7. I think that's a key verse of his first part. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. They are fruitful, they increased in number, and they fill the earth. Does that ring a bell? Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. Does that ring a bell? Let me read Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 for us. After creating mankind, God blessed mankind and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. Do you understand what's going on? God is fulfilling his promise. Come on, he's using his people, the Israelites, to bless all the nations of the world. Do you get it? He's using his people to fulfill his promise, to bless you, to bless us, we are, whether we are Jews or non-Jews. People from all the earth. God is keeping his promises. And when he sent his son, Jesus, the promised king, the Messiah, to set us free from the curse of the law, because cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. When God sent his son who obey the law perfectly, who live a perfect life I could never live, who die the death I deserve, didn't he bless us as well? He did. He did bless us. By making us children of who? Of Abraham. How? By faith in Christ. That's what we can read in Galatians chapter 3, verse um, 10 and, and 17. Do you get it? If you're a Christian today, this morning, you can be a child of Abraham. How? By faith in Christ. God has kept his promises. He's a faithful God. Imagine that someone asks you, why are you a Christian today? What would you say? 
Why are you a Christian? One day I, I heard someone uh, say that the reason why he was a, a Christian and not a Muslim, a Hindu, or a Buddhist was uh, threefold. Three reasons. First of all, why am I a Christian? Because I believe that the God of the Bible spoke in the history of the world. Second reason, the reason why I'm a Christian is because I believe God made promises to his people. And the third reason why I'm a Christian is because I believe that God has kept his promises in Christ. All the promises that God has made in are, are fulfilled. They are yes and amen, as the New Testament says, in, in him. Why don't you try to give that answer? In the next few days, the next few weeks, or this year, if someone, why are you a Christian? Because God is a faithful God. He spoke, he made promises, he kept his promises. So if God's people grow and explode in the book of Exodus, it is because God has kept his promises. He's a faithful God, isn't he? Second reason, from verse 8 to 22, God keeps his people. God keeps his people. As we've seen, the explosion of God's people is, is a blessing for them. But it's a curse, isn't it? It's a curse for the king of Egypt to whom Joseph meant nothing. In other words, the gratitude for what Joseph did in the past, remember? He saved the country from famine. This gratitude is completely gone, forgotten. So the king is going to deal shrewdly, that's an interesting way to, to put it, in a crafty way with the Israelites, while threatening his power. I mean, think about it, as the text explains, if a war breaks out, and by this time, as far as we know, there's no war, but hey, if, if a war breaks out, if the Israelites, who have become numerous, join the enemies, fight against Egypt, and leave a country, I mean, What's going to happen? Who is going to build the king's empire? Who? The king needs his slaves to build his empire. That's why he's going to act very shrewdly. He's going to limit the proliferation of God's people by oppressing them with forced labor under the supervision of ruthless slave masters to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses in the northeast of Egypt, as you can see on the map. And I guess if you've seen the, the DreamWorks uh, animation movie, The Prince of Egypt, have you seen that movie? Maybe you remember the flogging, the beating, the suffering and the misery of God's people. But look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. The more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread. You can also translate this verse. They hated, they started to hate the Israelites. And the king is now going to resort to a radical way to limit their proliferation, which is a bit irrational. He needs his people to build his empire. Why would he do this? The king of Egypt said to the Hebrews midwives, to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, 
when you are helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the de delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. What are the midwives going to do? Will they obey or disobey the king's order? Well, the text says that because they fear God, because they not only believe in God, but, but they love God, they're not going to take part in the king's killing frenzy. They're not. It is indeed the Lord and no one else who brings death and makes alive. Not even the king of the most powerful nation of the time. And he's going to keep his people by using two remarkable women. Two remarkable women who had the courage to disobey the king of Egypt, the most powerful man of the time. And if you find yourself in a similar situation today, I wonder if you'll have the same courage. I mean, what would you have done if you had been in the shoes of these two women? Of course, we need to submit to the authorities by paying our, our taxes. Hope you've all submitted your tax return. Maybe you've got some more time. We need to um, obey our employees, our, our employees. But if you're a Christian, and if your boss tells you to do something which goes clearly against God's moral will, what will you do? In the office, in your ward, in your placement, what will you do? Will you obey or disobey, even at the risk of losing your job? But you might object, hey, hey, wait a minute. These midwives, they are not really remarkable, are they? They are not really commendable, are they? Didn't they lie? Didn't they lie? I mean, look at verse 18 and to 21. Then the king, of e the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys leave? The midwives answered Pharaoh, the king, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the, because the midwives fear God, he gave them families of their own. What a great God we have. He rewards liars. What a great and just God you have as Christians. I don't want to become a Christian. That's ridiculous. These women lied. And God is rewarding them for lying. How would you answer to that one? I think we need to tackle this question because they are hard questions and some uh, strongly convinced atheists, they will push you hard, really hard. What can we say? Look, two things rapidly. First of all, the text never says that the midwives lied. The text never says that the midwives lied. Never. But even if 
even if the midwives lied. And I don't think they did. Who are we? Who are we to judge them? Who are we? You've never lied before, have you? You're just a good and moral person. I admire you. Well done. Let anyone of us who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at this woman. Let God be God, for he's the only judge. That's the first thing we need to, to remind ourselves. And the second thing is that it is quite possible indeed that these midwives actually told the truth. I mean, think about it for a second. After all, hasn't God promised to bless his people? Hasn't he? Yes or no? Yes, he did. Did he bless his people? Yes or no? Yes. How did he bless his people? Well, he kept his promises. He kept his people. They became numerous. Why couldn't he bless his people? By protecting them. Giving these women, the Israelite women, the strength, the vigor they need to deliver babies and fulfill his promise. That would make sense. God is faithful. He's powerful. He can keep his people. He blessed his people. Nothing would stop him from blessing his people in this way by giving uh, the Hebrew women the strength they need to deliver babies. And I don't think personally that they lied. He blesses his people because they fear him. They love him. They want to respect him. They don't want to disappoint him because they love him so much. They, they want to obey him. God is faithful, isn't it? He's powerful. He keeps his promises. He keeps his people. And because I think personally, theologically, there is some kind of continuity between um, God's people in the Old Testament and God's people in the New Testament, and because God doesn't change, I think the same principle applies for us today as Christians. Our God is faithful, isn't he? He is powerful. He keeps his promises. And he keeps his people. But you might argue that, oh well, you know, something has changed. Come on. We're not living in Egypt. We're living in 21st century Melbourne. That's different. We are not persecuted for our faith in Christ. Nobody is trying to kill us. Well, maybe not in Australia. Agreed. But if you were living in North Korea right now, what do you think will, would happen to you? Do you think you could go and grab a, a coffee every day and uh, give a life normally as Christians? Do you think that would be possible? The likelihood is that you would probably be sent to labor camps or to a labor camp, or a prison camp, whatever you call it. Because following Christ in this country is regarded as a crime. And if you open, um, visit the Open Doors website, to which I refer to, you can read many stories of Christians being oppressed, persecuted, and sometimes killed for their faith. Why don't you visit this website tonight or this week? Why don't you read just one story? Why don't you pray for at least one persecuted Christian? If that's appropriate, why don't you read a story with your kids? To help them to understand that in some countries, 
following Christ means that you are basically putting your life, your life at risk. Why don't you do that if you think that's appropriate? One of these stories is uh, the story of an Indian pastor called uh, Vipin, who is regularly despised, rejected, insulted, and even assaulted by some Hindus in his village in India. And one day, Vipin tells us that some people living at the back of his house were watching him. So he got really scared. And he started to go in and out of his house through the window. don't know about you, but I've never been, personally, I've never fit for my life as a Christian in Melbourne. Have you? But that doesn't mean no one is watching us, does it? Don't you think someone is watching us right now? As Christians, the Bible tells us, and I think we need to be aware of this, not to give it too much importance, but not underestimating it, that we've got a spiritual enemy whose mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. Destroy our faith. And our oppressor who prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if you're Christian, that person is, is you. This oppressor is trying to, to steal your faith, to destroy it, and to kill it. I know we live in such a materialistic society that we sometimes forget that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. So let me ask you, Two questions. What do you think is oppressing us as a local church in 21st century Melbourne? What do you think is oppressing us here at Camberwell South Anglican Church today? Is it materialism leading to spiritual laziness? A lack of zeal for the Lord? A lack of Love of the lost, no prayer, no evangelism, no door knocking. That's fine, don't worry. It's okay. What is it? Second question. What is oppressing you as, as a Christian today? Who or what is trying to steal, to kill, and to destroy your faith? On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Maybe it's suffering. You'll suffer. And you don't know where God is in the middle of your suffering. And you feel abandoned. You think that God doesn't care. Maybe it's depression. I'm not talking about just having the blues or being in the doldrums. I'm talking about clinical depression. And you feel so low that you've lost it. And you think that God has forsaken you. Maybe it's loneliness. You feel lonely. Maybe in singleness, you, you desperately want to get married and nothing happens. And you've met no one and you feel that God has abandoned, has been, has abandoned you. Maybe it's a love of money. You just love money. The problem is that it can make you wander from the faith. 
Remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16? You can't serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What is it? But it's trying to, to kill you as a Christian, to steal your faith, to destroy you. I don't know. But hey, if you've identified your spiritual oppressor, why don't you share it with someone? Why don't you share your struggle with someone you trust? Or maybe in your DT, your Bible study group in, during the week. If you think that's appropriate, don't fight the good fight of faith by yourself. Don't fight the good fight of faith on your own. We are a family. We are a body. We are a temple. We need each other. I need you guys. I need you. After realizing that some people were watching him at the back of his house, uh, Pastor Vipin realized something, and that was an eye-opener. Even if opposition was surrounding him, God was near to you. And this is what he says. God made me understand that he was my protection. So I started to use the front door again. And now, I'm not afraid anymore. Isn't that a wonderful testimony? The Lord is indeed your protection. He's our protection as a church and as Christians. He's our refuge and our rock. And if you don't believe me, why don't you read just one psalm a day, just one psalm a day, and you will find out that God is described as a rock, as a refuge, as a shelter, as a fortress, a stronghold, a shield in almost every single chapter. I've tried to count. I've lost count. I've been reading this uh, devotional book by, by Keller, again, called um, uh, My Rock, My Refuge. That's very interesting. Do you know that this book, as far as I know, used to be have another name, The Songs of Jesus. When I ordered it online, it was the same book. I said, what's going on? I think that the title has been changed over the years. It's exactly the same content, as far as I know. And I wonder why... Would the publisher or the writer change the name? I think I get it now. The Psalms are all about God being the rock and refuge of his people. It's almost in every single chapter. If you don't believe me, check it out for yourself. I've lost track in, I think, around some 70. The Lord keeps his promises. He will keep the promises made. He will keep his promises keeps his people. He's keeping you right now. And that's why his people grow and explode. The Lord will never leave you or forsake you. Never. He's faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. He's building his church. He's building this church. And nothing, absolutely nothing will overcome it. Not even the gates of hell. Isn't that the good news? Let's pray to finish. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, faithful God, thank you because you're a God who spoke in the history of our world, who made promises and kept your promises. We praise you because you protect your people. You are a refuge. You are a rock. And we pray that you would increase our faith in you, but also our zeal for you.
a love for you, a love for your people, a love for the lost, so that they might know that you are the Lord and that apart from you, there is no God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.